This is the second Sunday of Advent, and remember that for the next two weeks after this, the themes uh, for Advent are going to be about expectation, they're going to be about repentance, they're going to be about joy, they're going to be about the fulfillment of God's purposes for humankind. So today what I want to do is to preach uh, on all three readings uh, from the prophet Isaiah, from Second Peter, the latest piece of literature in the New Testament, and from Mark's Gospel, where we are introduced to our old friend, John, don't single, sing Jingle Bells to me, the Baptist. <laughs> so we'll, we'll hear from him. And uh, one of the themes that will be raised in that reading is uh, uh, repentance and what it is and how, how we understand it. In the book of the prophet Isaiah, we read today from chapter 40, one of the most well-known passages in Isaiah, probably because Handel's Messiah has this as one of the uh, arias, or however you say, in the, in the oratorio. Uh, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, says your God. If you read this in Hebrew, it says, speak to the heart of my people. And we have preserved in the New Revised Standard Version how it was rendered by the King James Bible because they believed that that was a more understandable thing for people in, I guess, the 16th century England understood comfort better than speak to the heart of my people. I'm not so sure that's true, but that's what they thought. That's what the translators thought. So that's what we have, and we've repeated that out of solicitude for, of the English Bible tradition. But this is another example of all we've been reading for several weeks now, a lot of material from the Bible that has a, an apocalyptic tone. You know, the world's going to end in a divine ethnic cleansing. There's going to be a whole lot of stuff happening. People are going to be carried up into the sky. There's going to be all these sorts of things. And, you know, frankly... Uh, for people living in the first part of the 21st century, that's very hard to, to grasp. We just don't think that way anymore. But we do believe that God's purposes are being worked out. And this is a season about the coming of the Savior, both his historical birth and also the fact that there is going to be uh, some time God putting the world to rights and we will see in history God's purposes being worked out. And it will no doubt have a dramatic uh, face on it when that occurs in that fashion. But most of us, when we try to appropriate a passage like this, uh, have to do it in our culture and in the history of the West in, in the sense of how, how does this affect me? How does it affect my own faith? How does it affect my spiritual pilgrimage? How do I understand what it is that uh, I should be doing in the world? What does God want from me? And uh, how can I live a life congruent with those purposes? What can, I, what can I do? So perhaps one of the ways in here is to say that when we speak of the coming of the Savior, the Savior is continuously coming. 
both in terms of the community and also in our own interior emotional, spiritual, and mental states. There are times when God is very close to us. There are times when God has come to us. Father Thomas Keating, when he speaks about God, he says, God is always on the move. You can't catch it. So when you look, he's gone, and he's gone so fast, he's come back. But each time he comes back, it's not the same. And I suspect the way in which we experience God is just like that. It's not the same. But he's, oh, God is always on the move. And uh, he said in one lecture I heard him give, maybe that's why Elijah could only see his back. <laughs> right? Because he was moving so fast. And he was back again. And so forth. So this season is not just speaking about two discrete events or the commemoration of one and the hope of the other one coming, but how we understand that occurring in our own lives. What does it mean to, to expect in some way that God is coming to us uh, continuously? And in the prophet Isaiah, we have, dramatic we have dramatic descriptions about things, but it's from a real historical situation. This, just so you can put this on ice and amaze your friends, this comes from 2nd Isaiah. Um, most people think that there are actually, there's actually a school of Isaiah. People, the prophet, and then those who were his students. So you have 1st Isaiah. Now we're in chapter 40 and we have 2nd Isaiah. And as we get towards the end, we, we, we're into 3rd Isaiah or Trito Isaiah. And the, so who cares? The reason for this is that uh, it spans a period of time in history that uh, had to have had uh, more than one person who put this book together. And uh, there are multiple attestations uh, for that sort of thing. This Isaiah is speaking about the return from exile in Babylon in about 583 BCE. And he's speaking of what's going to happen and what God is going to do is the people are returning from Babylon and must engage now in a process of rebuilding in Jerusalem. Now why this is important for Advent and why it's important for Christianity is that Christians who wrote the New Testament believed that this grand narrative was demonstrating to them God's movement towards restoration. That all of us are moving in some fashion towards the fulfillment of God's purposes. And in Jesus' time, there were a number of people who believed that the return from exile had not been completed. It had not happened completely. And it was still going on, including Jesus. So much of his preaching has to do with the return is, has now reached its fulfillment in me. And we're going to see now all of the processes of the reconciliation. This is why John the Baptist is quoting from Isaiah and the hills are going to be leveled. Everybody's path is going to be easy. We're going to have a, a smooth sailing as the result of God's working in the world. So Isaiah sets us up for that reality. 
Uh, theologians speak, I hope this isn't getting too complex, but theologians often talk about how God's purposes have been accomplished uh, now, but not yet. Now, but not yet. So in Advent, we're thinking about both those things, now and not yet. Second Peter is the uh, most believe that it was written about 125 uh, A.D., so it's the latest or last book in the New Testament, and therefore it is, as some would say, pseudonymous, but it's certainly in the spirit of Peter and clearly was written by someone who was a student or one of his followers or one of his uh, confreres in some fashion. And he's uh, attempting to make sense out of the fact that, well, he's not come yet. <laughs> right? So what do we do? And how do we think about that? And we have a famous line in this, in this reading that says, you know, uh, one day is like a huge amount of time compared, to, you know, in God's time. And remember, we've talked about two kinds of time. Kronos chronological time, and kairos, time. So that, you know, it's hard for us to believe uh, so many things. People often don't think about this. The Bible, as we have it now, is broken up into verses, both the Old and the New Testament. There were no verses in the Bible until somewhere in the 1200s. It was just read like a, you know, like a novel. Some Bibles are reproduced, printed these days in such a way as that even though they have the verses, they look more like a, reading a book, not just a series of verses that you can quote. So the way in which we thought about time uh, in the Middle Ages was certainly different until we got chronological time, uh, principally because it was now it, we were able to master the technology to make a clock. Right? So the monks in the monasteries were the first ones with the clocks because they chimed and told them when it was time to get up in the middle of the night and go into the chapel and pray. So they had some sort of a way that time got divided. So Peter is speaking about this to people for whom those things would have been incomprehensible. No, no idea what it meant. But he says three things. Reginald Fuller, who I have a great respect for, was a great biblical scholar in the 20th century. He says Peter, or the author of Second Peter, is speaking about the necessity for watchfulness as part of Christian living. We talked about this last week. It's important to pay attention. It's important to be alert. It's important to be mindful. Mindfulness is a, is a concept that occurs in other of the great faith traditions as well, and it's something that's important. You know, like Brother Lawrence, in the practice of the presence of God, if you're doing the dishes, concentrate on what it is you're doing. Pay attention. And in that process, you're going to be able to understand something about the processes of God at work in you. 
So Peter thinks, or Second Peter says, watchfulness is part of Christian living. Rightly understood, the imminent hope in Christianity is motivation for the pursuit of holiness and godliness of life. Some of that may have to do with the fact that it's important for us to understand that things happened to us and, and we weren't ready. We hadn't paid any attention and we weren't ready. Now, you can think about that in financial terms. You can think about that in terms of your own physical health. You can think about that in terms of being uh, prepared and having your car maintained so that it isn't going to break down on the road so you don't get yourself into hot water in some way. So it's important to do that, but the cultivation of holiness of life is uh, beginning to find out what it is that God wants you to do uh, as you are uh, moving forward in your life. And also, finally, he said it is important that Christian people always maintain the idea that uh, the final goal of history is in some way now to restore the kingdom of heaven here. You can, sh you can get rid of all of the apocalyptic imagery if you want, but the fact is that's, that's a very important understanding of early Christians. And, and, and many Jews, in terms of how it is that we understand uh, God putting the world to rights in that sense. The, I didn't mention this. In Isaiah, when they mentioned the term good tidings, good tidings uh, in, in, in Hebrew and in Greek mean, uh, is the word in Greek for what we call the gospel. Evangelion, right? The good news. So good tidings have something to do with how, how we publish that. And we have multiple responsibilities. We need to be witnesses to that as, as individuals. And as a faith community, we need to be living uh, in such a way that the world sees us living in a way congruent with God's purposes, that we understand what that means, and that we're all moving in a direction in some way. So here we go to Mark, and in Mark's gospel, we have, you know who, John the Baptist. Uh, it's fairly clear, uh, in fact, I think it's indisputable that John the Baptist, uh, that Jesus' ministry flowed out of the ministry of John the Baptist. They very possibly may have been related. And it is also fair to say that many have said that John the Baptist had some great familiarity with the Qumran community, the place where the Dead Sea Scrolls were, were from. And so we understand in some way that he was aware of their idea of restoration. What did it mean when we're speaking about the, the cleansing of the temple and uh, making it now a place of authentic worship for God's people? And John the Baptist knew something about that. A voice crying in the wilderness. Ten years ago, there was a cartoon in the New Yorker magazine where a woman in, was in the middle of the desert wearing a DKNY suit and she with an alligator bag. And she was standing in the desert and underneath it said, Get me out of this wilderness! 
a voice crying in the wilderness, right? Gee whiz, you know. So what this gospel has to do is the introduction of what we're going to be moving towards in the next week or two. John the Baptist is talking about the necessity for repentance. Changing the direction where th- that you're looking for happiness. Turning around and looking at things in a new way. Uh, the original words for repentance are two in the New Testament. The most f- familiar one is metanoia, metanoiete. And in that one, it means to turn around and to look at things from a different perspective. But it has a more um, active understanding of the word. Once you have made this decision, converted yourself, it means to now put it in your hands and to make demonstrable by your actions what it is that you're doing differently. The other word, epistrophe, has to do with making the internal commitment to do that. So that you have decided. It's the processes of conversion, which then move to saying, put it in your hands. How do you put it in your hands and what do you do? So John the Baptist is a pretty apocalyptic guy, so he, he wouldn't be talking about gradualism here, you know. But I think most of us who, who have uh, uh, desired to live a life congruent with God's purposes know that, you know, it comes and fits and starts. We don't usually change and convert and just move in one direction and do this all the time with not any, uh, as some preachers used to, backsliding, Right? We just move, we move forward and then sometimes we go back. So we have to, keep, have to keep doing that sort of thing. All of the great writers on the spiritual life have said, if you don't feel like it, doing it anymore, if you find that you're, it's like dust in your mouth, you need to keep doing it. You need to keep doing it. And once you do that, you enable yourself to uh, pass through uh, difficulties, but just deciding I'm, I'm giving up on it is, is not the right, right thing to do. And I bet most of you, certainly I have, felt like giving up from time to time. It's just too much, too hard. So you need to persist and to do this. So I was thinking about the assignment for this week, and um, it's I think we need to do things from last week and this week. Think about new beginnings. You know, it's interesting. The beginning of the church year, for, this is the beginning of the year for Christians. But not very long from now, we have the new calendar year. And that's a time when we normally, uh, or some make New Year's resolutions. Uh, my personal experience is, is that I have had to learn not to make too many. Because <laughs> I can create a big list. But to understand that, new year, that uh, resolutions are an important thing and they're part of this commitment. So think about that. Think about if there's any place that you need to change uh, the direction that, for which you're looking for happiness or from which. 
and think about how you can act in, in the world with others as a comforter. That you can bring God's unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness uh, to other people by your example. Amen. Amen.